Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. The Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton, Chapter 9, Independent Operations. In the next few months, many operations were planned, but most of them, for varying reasons, had to be cancelled. Some of those that were carried out didn't make headlines, but nevertheless, they are of interest and to the men who took part in them, they were important and deserve recording here. The first, by an unknown narrator, deals with the invasion of the south of France from an Italian base. The Independent Squadron, late number 3 Squadron, left Italy before the 1st Airborne Division embarked for home. This may have been authority being thoughtful, or it might have meant that the squadron was destined for an operation that never materialised, a practice all too common in airborne planning. Be that as it may, the squadron embarked in American C-47s at Guala del Cule in southern Italy, en route for Uja in French Morocco. Uja at that time was the American Airborne Forces Training Centre. Here the squadron established itself and was engaged upon training and ferrying newly constructed gliders, Waco CG-4A, from Casablanca to Uja. The squadron remained there for about a month, during which time it settled down very well. The members of the unit managed to get the going-home feeling out of their systems and became resigned to the fact that they would be away from the UK for at least another year. Uja was a friendly station. It was, in fact, a veritable United Nations. There were South Africans, French, Americans and ourselves. This regular Allied organisation got along very well together and its camp permanent staff did their utmost to ensure that we had everything that we required for our comfort. While there, the unit was visited by Major General E.E. Down, CBE, who was on his way to India to take command of the Indian Airborne Division. Soon after American Thanksgiving Day, the unit was ordered to return to Sicily as the whole of the American Airborne Training Centre was moving into that island. The American commander, Colonel E. Reddy, a personality remembered by the whole unit, gave the officers a small party and wished us Godspeed for our journey. On the 4th of December 1943, the first gliders left Udja for Camiso in Sicily, which was to be our HQ for the next five months. Ten gliders left each day, and it was proposed that the squadron should take three days to clear Udja. That move was not too successful, but approximately a week later all gliders had arrived at Camiso. Camiso, a pleasantly situated airport in the south of Sicily, had been very heavily bombed during the invasion of Sicily, and in consequence the buildings were pretty badly damaged. The squadron was given a barrack block near the main gate, which, with the normal glider pilot make-do-and-men methods, soon changed into a comfortable sergeant's mess, which was to become the envy of our American friends, who used it as if it was their own. Flying at Camiso was the best that the squadron ever experienced. The American 54 Troop Carrier Group made five C-47s daily available to the squadron, and soon every pilot was thoroughly enjoying himself. The American group commander was determined that the squadron pilots should get as much gliding as possible. He therefore decided that the squadron should be divided among the other stations of his command. Accordingly, a flight was sent to Gerbini, another to Ponte Alevo, while the HQ and the third flight remained at Camiso. 
These conditions prevailed for about four months, in which time the squadron's flying skill increased until moonlight landings became a routine affair. In fact, the squadron's flying ability was such that it ranked equal with any in the glider pilot regiment. During this period, we were joined by the 22nd Independent Parachute Platoon, the Pathfinder unit of the 2nd Parachute Brigade. Training there proceeded with a unit, which was destined to lay out the landing zones the squadron was to use in the invasion of the south of France. This cooperation was to pay big dividends, as the pilots got to know and trust those who were charged with the clearance and organisation of their landing zones. Every pilot in the squadron felt more confident in his personal ability as a flyer after this training in Sicily, which was one of the main factors in the successful completion of the glider pilot job in the south of France. About April 1944, authority realised that the American GC-4A was not suitable for carrying the British six-pounder anti-tank gun because it could only lift about £3,000, which meant that a gun and towing vehicle required two aircraft to lift them. Although this limitation of the Waco became apparent during the invasion of Sicily, it was still employed operationally up to the end of the war. However, it was agreed that the 3rd Glider Pilot Squadron should re-equip with British horses, a glider which was considered in every way more suitable for operations. The first problem was, where were the horses to come from? It was known that some were still in North Africa, where they had been left since the invasion of Sicily in the summer of 1943, With the help of the Americans, a search party set out to locate those which remained in the theatre and to bring them to Sicily where training on them could begin. The search party located some 14 horses in all, 12 of them on E-Strip by the Old Salt Lake in the El Gem area where they had been left when the regiment had returned home at the end of 1943. Not only were these aircraft in good condition, but it was discovered that they were maintained by a party of RAF Irks who must have been forgotten by their squadron. These men had done a wonderful job and the horses were ready for their trip to Sicily within 24 hours of the arrival of the search party. The RAF men were taken to Sicily in the horses they had looked after and they became the nucleus of the squadron maintenance flight which was to serve the unit so well. Two more horses were collected from Bleeder. How they got to Bleeder the squadron never discovered in spite of a considerable amount of research into their movements. Perhaps one of our readers may be able to answer this mystery. These 16 horses were now employed on training and everyone was extremely pleased to fly them again. There was one famous mishap when the rope came out of the tug on takeoff and the glider was forced to land in an olive grove. It turned out that the American towship squadron commander had been persuaded to be a passenger, a duty that was not appreciated by the powered pilots. This officer had only flown in a glider once before and on that occasion he had been involved in a prang. This experience, he admitted, ended his gliding career. Training with the horses proceeded satisfactorily while they were lightly laden, but when fully loaded, the tow ship, tug captains, complained that their aircraft were underpowered. This factor limited the scope of training, but light load flying continued without interruption. During this period, the new horses began to arrive. They were shipped in packing cases to Catania, where they were assembled by the RFMU. Although not Mark IIs, they were a considerable improvement on the old weather-beaten veterans that we were using for training. By the beginning of June 1944, the squadron moved from Sicily to Guido in Italy and began to train seriously with the units it was to take to France. In July 1943, the 2nd Parachute Brigade moved forward to the Rome area, which was to be the base from which the Allied airborne troops were to invade the south coast of France. The squadron first moved to an aerodrome known as Massigliani, but this proved unsatisfactory, and during the last days of July it moved farther north to Tarquina. Tarquina was a good aerodrome, ideally situated on the west coast of Italy, 
with a runway that pointed out to sea and had no obstructions that might prove dangerous to heavily laden gliders and tugs during takeoff. On arrival at Tarkina, the squadron was joined by a new C-47 group. This group had taken part in the invasion of Normandy, where it had pulled heavily laden horses. There is no doubt that this C-47 group was the best that the squadron ever cooperated with, and to them should go the major part of the credit for the success that was achieved. Nothing was too difficult for them, and any suggestions that were put forward were readily agreed to. It was a great loss to the squadron when at the end of the operation, the group returned to the UK, where it was employed on the airborne operations in Holland in the autumn of that year. At the beginning of August, the first briefing was given to the combined tug and glider crews. Our objective was to be the south of France, in the area of San Rafael. Briefing was carried out by the normal means, but the prize briefing feat was a sand model built on the floor of the briefing tent. This model was constructed by the brigade intelligence officer, and it proved to be extremely accurate, giving a good bird's eye view of the landing zone. The I.O. only had a map and an air photo of the area, yet he managed to create a first-rate model. In glider pilot briefing, a good model of the LZ was often of great value, for it allowed the pilot to get an impression of the ground he would fly over before the day of the assault. The Americans agreed that there should be one complete dress rehearsal. This dress rehearsal was to be used to iron out faults in glider marshalling and takeoff procedure. Yet when everyone was airborne, a three-hour flight was undertaken in order to practice the loose pair formation. This rehearsal proved that the squadron was in excellent condition, and the smoothness with which everything went boded well for the future. During the spring and summer of 1944, the squadron's main problem was glider maintenance and repair. The establishment of a glider pilot squadron allowed for no personnel for ground duties except those employed on the actual towpath. When the squadron was re-equipped with horses, no real servicing unit was attached to the squadron. Servicing during the period when the squadron had only Wacos was the responsibility of the Americans, but when the horses arrived, the Americans were not equipped to undertake their maintenance. At the beginning, the horses were maintained by the Irks from North Africa, but as the number of horses increased with the arrival of new aircraft from the MU at Catania, they were unable to cope with the job. It was then decided to create a maintenance flight from squadron resources, allowing the pilots to do the daily inspections and minor repairs to the airframes. This system proved very satisfactory and kept the squadron flying during the training. However, as the operation approached, all the pilots were required for briefing and consequently the servicing became a major problem. In this case, the problem was solved by the local MU in the Rome area loaning the squadron some 30 irks of various trades until after the invasion of the south of France. Servicing was the worst difficulty the squadron had to face throughout its stay in the Mediterranean, and it did considerable harm to the efficiency of the unit. It is hoped that establishment committees have since learnt wisdom, and that now all army flying units possess their own integrated maintenance flights. At 0400 hours on the 14th of August 1944, Rivali was ordered for the squadron. Breakfast was served from 0400 hours, and by 0430 hours the aircrews were assembling at their aircraft. The aircraft were already marshalled the night before, so that all would be ready for takeoff at the first signs of dawn. Dead on 0530 hours, the first towship started to move out onto the runway, and the glider's part in the invasion of southern France had begun. The takeoff went perfectly, and within 30 minutes the formation was heading out into the Mediterranean. This takeoff, however, was not destined to be the actual assault. After one hour's flying, the formation turned slowly and returned to Tarquina. The reason given was that the landing zone was covered with mist and that it would have been impossible to land. The marshalling of the ground formation for the mass takeoff of gliders was always a long and tricky job, 
In this case, both pilots and ground crews set to work and the gliders and tow ships were marshalled ready within an hour and a half of the last glider returning. This was undoubtedly one of the major achievements of 3 Squadron, the Glider Pilot Regiment. The second takeoff for the invasion began at 1400 hours. This time, everything went satisfactorily and the squadron reached the landing zone on time. The zone was situated in a valley with relatively steep sides, about 400 yards square, and with boundaries well defined by stone fences and woods. The leading glider was flown by squadron commander Major R. Coulthard, who missed the landing zone and ended up on the edge of the wood. Although he was badly wounded, his load was intact and it was delivered to the anti-tank battery. The squadron commander was not the only pilot who made an unfortunate landing. Indeed, the valley, which had been studded with anti-invasion poles, was covered with badly damaged horses and wacos. It was surprising how few casualties there were, but it must be remembered that the horser was a dear old friend to the glider pilot regiment and often protected the crews and passengers by breaking up itself without breaking up the inmates. Thanks to them, the troops were safely delivered and the invasion a success. About this operation, I will say no more than that it was not one of the spectacular efforts of the regiment. However, it was successful and it demanded the highest flying skill. It proved also that one of the most important factors in the success of any airborne operation is cooperation between the air crews of the transportation aircraft and the airborne troops. The second narrative describes a military mission to Yugoslavia and is told by Captain Cornelius Turner. Bunghole, the glider operation into Yugoslavia, was a truly allied undertaking. The towing aircraft were C-47s of 64th Troop Carrier Group, USAAF, the glider pilots British, flying American Waco gliders. It was mounted at very short notice at the request of 133 Force, War Office Intelligence, and the human cargo consisted of a high-ranking Russian general and staff officers, under command of General Korneyev. The first intimation to the independent glider squadron, stationed at Comiso Airfield in Sicily, that anything was afoot, came in the form of instructions to fetch immediately from one of the airstrips near Kerouan in Tunisia three horse gliders that were said to be lying there. We flew over with the American troop carrier squadron to which we were attached and landed at dusk on the desolate abandoned strip. There the gliders were, looking utterly lonely and dejected, the last remnants, but for the wrecks and the rusty tin cans, of the masses of men and machines that had packed these airstrips, roads and olive groves, when this area was the first airborne div HQ and the base for the Sicily landings. These horses had been at the mercy of wind, rain and the Arabs for six months, but there was no question of a proper inspection, nor indeed anyone who was qualified to carry one out. In the morning the pilots got in, tentatively checked the creaking controls, patted the woodwork trustingly, and flew them 250 miles across the Mediterranean to Sicily. Their immediate orders were to carry straight on to Bari in Italy, with each glider loaded with a jeep and anything else that would make up a £7,000 load. We tested the loading, for we never had any loading charts, by arranging the load so that a body swinging from the tail could just raise the front wheels clear of the ground. Our well-attested experience was that this simple method is always satisfactory. The flight to Bari, with the tow ships barely clearing the high hills through heavy snow and a northeast gale, was an unpleasant experience for all concerned. The towing pilots on arrival immediately insisted that a C-47 horse combination over the Dinaric Alps of Yugoslavia was out of the question, and this was indeed self-evident. The horse plan was shelved, 
But though cheated on this occasion of their rightful destiny, these gliders died honourably in the end, for their remains now lie in a vineyard 20 miles northwest of Cannes. The following day, therefore, three Waco gliders, on which all our overseas glider training up to then had been carried out, were flown up by the squadron. Loading was carried out up to £4,500 apiece, and test flights made. The Russian commanding general insisted that all his staff should take part in these test flights in their appointed position. They went off without incident, if one accepts the sporting decision of Staff Sergeant McCulloch to execute a 360-degree turn over the town from about 300 feet on his landing approach. The aim of the flight was to land the Russian officers inside occupied Yugoslavia in a valley called Menedapolu, the honey field, two miles north of the small town of Bozan Petrovac, about midway between Zagreb and Sarajevo in the eastern foothills of the Dinaric Alps, which rise at this point to 8,000 feet. The LZ was about 100 miles inland from the Dalmatian coast and 250 miles north from Bari. Our diversion raid was to be carried out by the 15th US Air Force with 50 fortresses on Zagreb to the north. 36 American and British fighters, Mustangs, Thunderbolts and Spitfires, truly a regal entourage, with the escort detailed for the three gliders. The time of takeoff was 1100 hours. It was to be the first daylight glider operation. After two days of wintry weather, the skies cleared and the takeoff went off as planned. The gliders were piloted by myself and Staff Sergeant Newman, Staff Sergeant McCulloch, and Staff Sergeant Hill, and Staff Sergeant Morrison and Staff Sergeant McMillan. Incidentally, the C-47s of the USAAF, under command of Lieutenant Colonel Duden, were navigated respectively by an Australian, a South African and a New Zealander of the Royal Dominion's Air Forces. The escort was met at the rendezvous, 50 miles to the northwards, off the coast opposite the 8th Army forward positions, and the train headed northeast across the Adriatic at 8,000 feet in an absolutely cloudless sky and unlimited visibility. It was bitterly cold, and though the far-flung escort fighters were occasionally glimpsed wheeling and banking high overhead and far below, most of the time the gliders and tow ships seemed quite alone and defenceless in the midday sun. When landfall was made dead on track over the island of Zirji, the Balkan coast was seen to be blanketed with snow. The sharp outline of the towering range ahead was discerned when we were still over 50 miles away, and below there was not the slightest sign of civilization in the tortuous foothills, ribbed and ridged with ravines and patched with forest under the deep white carpet. The air was by now very turbulent, and this steadily increased during the next half hour, until at length the flight rocked and swayed thankfully over the last saddle with 500 or so feet to spare and peaks towering on either hand. As the hinterland opened up before us, we knew we were nearing our destination, and in a few minutes, after getting a fix on a large river, the tow ships turned about, and estimating my position about four or five miles from the LZ, I let go the rope of my lead glider and headed for the landing, being anxious not to bypass it a second time. As the gliders circled to land, thin wisps of smoke from straw fires were seen below, the first welcome indication that a correct pinpoint had been made. Within seconds and within a few yards of each other, the gliders touched down, or rather flopped, the sickening jolt into the snow, reared vertically onto their noses and slowly settled back. The landing run was about 20 feet and the ground snow about three feet deep. We were about 4,000 feet above sea level. We were the first Allied aircraft to land inside the country since the occupation. After being forcibly embraced by incredibly filthy and bearded natives, we were all hurried to a hut in the forest 
which verged on the valley in which we found ourselves. The Russians were very cheerful, laughing and shaking our hands, the generals of Uncular, and even the colonel, who had sat immediately behind me throughout the flight, nursing a tommy gun, grinned broadly for the first time in our acquaintance. After a short meal and suitable speeches in various languages, all unintelligible to us, and my own no less mysterious reply, we set out by sleigh for Petrovac, the only delay being the insistence of the Russian general that two large cases out of the baggage should accompany us instead of being brought along behind by the drugs, Serbo Krauat, for comrades. We assumed that these were too important to be let out of his sight, as he had sat on them all the way over. Arrived at Petrovac, a village of about 4,000 inhabitants, we were escorted to a large bare upstairs room, already filled to overflowing by picturesque brigands, whose presence intrigued the nasal senses no less than the eyes. There we all sat down to a veritable banquet, and it was then that the studied forethought of the general bore fruit, for his two fine cases turned out to be full of vodka and caviar. It may here be mentioned that under their greatcoats the Russian officers turned out to be wearing their smartest uniforms with full decorations, and this was an adroit psychological move, for the drugs were obviously far more impressed by these than by the somewhat individualistic sartorial affectations currently fashionable among British forces in this theatre. For three weary hours we ate course after course and drank tot after tot. But it was hail and farewell to banquets in Yugoslavia, For during our four weeks' incarceration inside that desperately poverty-stricken country, we never saw any tea, coffee, cocoa, salt, milk, only for children, sugar or any sweet things, yeast, butter or cheese, or other things which make food pleasant to eat. Our diet consisted exclusively of meat of every imaginable variety, except it seemed beef, mutton or pork, and potatoes, water, and unleavened rye and maize bread. There were some half-dozen British and American intelligence officers under command of Brigadier Fitzroy MacLean, already in the town when we arrived, together with some signals NCOs who operated the whimsical wireless set that should have kept us in touch with Cairo. Our valley, a hundred miles from the sea, was temporarily isolated by elements of the German army. Everybody knew that when the snow and the bitter cold were gone, rifle fire was the town's only defence. And in fact, within a day or two of the snow's departure, the Germans landed, a few weeks after we were back in Italy, in the gliders we already knew were assembled at Zagreb for that purpose. Marshal Tito's mountain stronghold was at Dravar, some ten miles away. It fell in a few minutes when the Germans came, and Tito made a hair's breadth escape into Italy. Each night, we would be out in the valley, ready to kindle straw fires arranged to form a code on the ground for the guidance of aircraft detailed to drop blankets, boots, rifles and ammunition, and sometimes men from bases in Italy. These were comfortless vigils, with no means of warmth but the straw and a hole in the snow with a temperature of 20 degrees or more of frost. Only two or three drops were made successfully during our stay, though we often heard aircraft. Naturally, the enemy also lighted fires, and a code of that nature is most difficult to interpret from an aircraft whose pilot is certain to hit a mountainside if he comes lower than three or four thousand feet above our heads. Once or twice, officers dropped out of the dark sky, stayed for a night, and then were off about their fascinating business elsewhere in the country, or to Austria, Bulgaria, Hungary, Germany, or heaven knows where. A pony was ready for them in the morning, and with their guides they disappeared into the forest. The drugs were passionately devoted to their leader, but were not impressive as soldiers. We were told that there was a high moral code in the ranks where men outnumbered girls by perhaps four to one. 
With commendable efficiency, they brought in accurate reports of all movements of the occupation forces and expeditiously wiped out any small patrol rash enough to enter their forests and mountain fastnesses. They thought the world of themselves, for they reminded us London Radio told them nightly that they were well-nigh perfect. The fact is that after seeing the Yugoslav and Greek partisans, one must form the conclusion that under suitable conditions, guerrilla warfare is the easiest of all forms of war and tends to attract the most shiftless no less than the most idealistic of recruits. It requires a very tough constitution and a marked ability to play hide-and-seek, touch-and-run or what have you, and in a terrain of roadless mountain and forest nothing really could be easier. Food when required was to be obtained on demand from any half-starved terrified woman called to our hut's doorway in the dark of the night at the rifle-butt knock of the drug. In Greece, we were later to know fine people who had carried out their day-to-day work throughout the occupation, some of them the salt of the earth, but their guerrillas were generally the scum. The women were the heroes, for they could not run far even if they had wished. The good ladies who lodged us knew they could be called to account when we had gone and the others arrived, but they gave us every possible comfort and service in their poor but spotlessly clean log houses. The ground floors were often devoted to domestic animals, the living quarters being on the first floor under the high roofs with broad eaves after the Swiss or Austrian fashion. There were no shops, for there was nothing whatever to sell. Most of the houses were detached with a few orchard trees about them. We never saw the ground underneath the snow, but most of the streets seemed to consist of beaten dirt and rubble roads. Surprisingly, a pair of minaret-like towers reminded us that many of the people were Muslims, and that for centuries past this had been Turkish soil. There was no sign of any calling but agriculture, and we saw no men at work except feeding hay to the animals and cutting logs for fuel. The countryside in general appeared much like a picture postcard of the Tyrol, or perhaps the Rocky Mountains, a white blanket of snow, the coniferous forests, and the naked white peaks above, sharp in the clear air. Patrolling JU-88s sprayed the town with a burst or two for luck as they passed over daily. About one third of the houses had been gutted by fire, either by the Germans or the Chetniks of Mihlajevich or the Ustachi of Pavlich. The two latter, the rival civil factions, were far more feared than the Germans. For civil war is the least civilised of conflicts. No quarter was expected or given between these parties, it being tacitly understood that if there are any accepted rules in war, these do not apply to civil warfare. But war apart, the people were of a very good-natured disposition. Lovers of music, they would take up quite spontaneously the song of some packhorse driver entering the street, and soon a hundred voices, young and old, would be joined in harmony, the women singing at their work and the children at their play. One evening a dance was held, and we all went and enjoyed ourselves immensely, for a country dance in Yugoslavia, Greece, Ireland or Kentucky is much the same and easy to get the hang of. Yes, war apart, they were a happy people, but should one wander towards the exits of the town, a cross-bandoliered, bomb-belted pirate or Amazon barring the way reminded us that there was little room for happiness in their lives now. After three weeks there were signs of the coming of the spring thaw, and at last the snow grew thin enough to consider the possibility of a landing on our LZ, for it was judged impossible yet to get through to the coast and away by sea. No Allied plane had previously landed and taken off, but intelligence officers were due to report at their headquarters at Bari. The details of Allied policy towards Tito had recently been fixed at Yatche, and new plans for opening up the country, new support for Tito, were afoot. So one night, a month after we had arrived, 
Two Dakotas groped their way into our forbidden valley, circled and winked in recognition of our fires, and finally cut their throttles and bumped to a standstill, to the accompaniment of gasps of amazement from the inhabitants and of relief from ourselves. The RAF pilots jumped cheerfully out, but after inspecting the snow, still a good nine inches deep on the field, they grimly set about cutting down weight. They threw the doors away, and the seats, the parachutes and the dinghies, an all-personal kit. No time was lost, and the engines had been ticking over, no more than ten minutes, when we scrambled aboard and sat on the floor, along with some seriously wounded drugs and a couple of fortunate German prisoners. As the engines opened up, and the Dakota's leaps grew longer, and the wheels came clear, one waited tersely, recalling the little hill at the end of the takeoff track. But we saw it flash below through the dark void, where the doors had been, and that was the last we saw of Yugoslavia. The third story tells of Sergeant G. Beesom's adventures with the French resistance movement. Exercise Dingson was a small and kind of personal operation. Just ten Wacos, or as they're called now, Hadrian gliders, took off one Saturday night in 1944. August the 5th was the exact date, 20 hundred hours of the time, the destination Saint-Hélène, about four miles south of Lorient, the big port in Brittany. The light was just beginning to fail when we touched down in France, roughly 170 miles behind the German lines. Our briefing officer had told us to watch out for a small fire and purple smoke indicators, but Jerry was more cooperative and had set light to a big country house. The landing was almost without incident, save for one glider flown by Staff Sergeant Rossdale and Sergeant Newton, which crashed into a small orchard. The pilots, badly cut and shaken, were cared for by the Maquis. We didn't set eyes on them again until the glider pilot reunion at the Queensbury Club a few years later. By the time we'd sorted out the injured in the crashed glider, our load and passengers, which consisted of high-powered jeeps and French SAS troops, were ready to whip us away through the dusty lanes to a big lake where we waited until the tide was up before being towed across to the Mackey HQ. This consisted of a farm, just like any farm in England, but with one difference. It was a painful thorn in the Jerry's side. The Frenchmen at the HQ, all wearing the armband of the resistance movement, were heavily armed, but not half as terrifying as our passengers, the SAS chaps. A more motley crew I have yet to see. Tough individuals, with bronze, scarred, leathery skin, armed with tommy guns, knives and grenades. A few sported phosphorus bombs in their pockets. They gave no quarter nor expected any in fighting, and away some of them used to go in their special jeep, armed with twin Vickers 18 guns in front and the third one on a mounting in rear, and attack a heavily armed pillbox defended by 25 Jerry's. How they managed to win and live is beyond me, but repeatedly they came back with a few prisoners. The remainder were shot. These chaps had a total disregard for danger. One chap came in with 13 pieces of shrapnel from an explosive bullet in his shoulder, the Mackie doctor was out somewhere with his Tommy gun, so my first pilot, Johnny Batley, DFM, cut the pieces out with a knife. No anaesthetic was used, just a little drop of iodine when the job was done, and away went the chap, chewing a piece of dark brown bread, collected some ammo, and off on the prowl with his comrades. We GPs saw little action because the chief of the Marquis had forbidden us to go out owing to language difficulties. Occasionally we did manage to slide away, but when we got back, we were carpeted by Captain Peggy Clark, the officer in charge of the little band of GPs. Staff Sergeant Bill May and I wandered off one afternoon and ended up nearly in Lorient. Only luck saved us from walking into a patrol of white Russians who were fighting for the Germans. The villagers indicated the patrol was in the village and ushered us into a small house where they fetched somebody who could speak English. 
It turned out to be an old man, complete with beard and spectacles. We nicknamed him Professor. He led us back to the HQ, where a very long strip was torn off us. While we had been away, some French women collaborators had been brought in and were in the process of being toughly handled by their captors. Another chap was happily cutting off all their hair, leaving a small tuft in the front. These women were put with the other prisoners in the pigsty, which, still serving its original occupants, was far from pleasant. The duty of guarding these prisoners had fallen to the glider pilots, and a more smelly guard I have never performed. The sty was split into three sections, women in one, pigs in the centre, and the male species in the remaining section. Our orders were, if attacked at night, to toss a few grenades into the sty, just to cheer them up. One afternoon the pigs had a guest in their little abode. A sullen-looking chap in civilian clothes was dumped into their midst. This individual was an alleged Gestapo spy who had been living in Lorient for some considerable time. Later that night he was stripped of all his clothes and hung upside down. For the next couple of hours he was subjected to some hot treatment. Cigarettes and lighters were applied to his body. A sword with the tip of its blade heated was poked into him repeatedly. And finally one bloodthirsty SAS chap carved a cross of Lorraine on the Jerry's chest. The man from the Gestapo was left with the blood trickling down him, his nose almost in the muck from the pigs. Feeling sick inside but too scared to say or do anything, we crept away to the barn to try to sleep. Life in this community was raw and hard. Skinny and sorry-looking cows were killed in the morning and eaten at night with a coarse, gritty brown bread. To drink, there was rough cider and some sort of whiskey made from potatoes. Sanitary arrangements were almost nil. An old open quarry was used by everyone for personal hygiene, and many a glider pilot was embarrassed when performing his toilet requirements when along came a woman to do the self-same thing a few feet away. So, when the news came that Yankee tanks were approaching Auré a few miles away, we were not sorry. The next day, after many farewells, we crossed the lake, this time on a raft, and were quickly transported to Auré, just as the first American tanks were entering. To get away from the Mackie HQ was a relief because we had learned that there was a reward of 20,000 francs for the glider pilots, dead or alive. We also learned that the white Russian troops of Germany had broken the arms and legs of 50 people in a nearby village just after we had landed, as a reprisal. The amount of truth in these stories I cannot vouch for. In Auray, a few of us stood on the corner, taking a synopsis of the popsies, when a big American came up to us, his battle bowler under his arm, and asked us how long we had been there. We asked him where he'd been for a week and why it had taken him so long. Suddenly, he turned to speak to an officer at his side and we saw on his steel helmet the insignia of a two-star general. He took all our jibes in good part and offered cigarettes all round. After a couple of hours in Auray, we were taken to Vannes. There we spent the night helping to guard 400 prisoners. The next day, these prisoners were bundled and packed into four American GS wagons. A fifth contained a few German officers and 18 glider pilots. Our destination from Vannes was Rennes. As the five wagons sped through the numerous towns and villages, people threw stones at the prisoners, which included us, I am unhappy to say. I guess we looked a sorry sight, as we had set off from England in just shirt sleeves without pay books or means of identification. A few people recognised the Red Beret, and there were cheers and shouts of Vive l'Anglais! Finally, Rennes was reached, and the prisoners handed over to a big cage. We were left in the hands of two English intelligence majors, who were under the impression that we were every bit as terrifying as the French compatriots we had flown in. Tales of fantastic deeds had reached the ears of these gentlemen, and they couldn't do enough for us. They gave us money, cigarettes and accommodation in the best hotels. 
We enjoyed dinner in the American officers' messes and the freedom of all Rennes, where nearly all places were off-limits to the American troops. Eventually, we went to the aerodrome at Rennes and lived like lords in a disused hut. This was a front-line drone providing 24-hour fighter cover of Thunderbolts and Mustangs. American Dakotas were flying their personnel to London for 48-hour passes in Piccadilly. Finally, we could wait no longer, so we gave a note to a DAC pilot to give to Brigadier Chatterton, asking for means of transport home. Two days later, a lone Dakota joined the circuit. The back door was open. We knew it was ours. We picked up the two RAF pilots, who were keen on souvenirs, and gave them a short conducted tour of the drome. They bagged signposts, speed limits and numerous odds and ends to decorate their mess. Late in the afternoon we landed at Netherhaven, 11 days after leaving England. 18 glider pilots, plus one Royal Marine Commando who was an escaped POW. A quick meal, and then off to the inevitable. Thank you for listening to my reading of Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. I hope you enjoyed it. If this has piqued your interest, there are six other audiobooks available to independent company members on our Patreon site, including The Ship by C.S. Forrester and Tank by Ken Tout. It's £5 a month, and on top of audiobooks read by me, you get unlimited access to exclusive content, weekly live streams, and early access to merchandise and other deals. To join, all you need to do is search patreon.com slash wehaveways. I'll be back tomorrow with the next episode of George Chatterton's Wings of Pegasus. Thank you.